Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as Rob said, we're going to be back in Exodus this morning in uh, chapter 2. Um, we'll get, get to that in just a minute or two here. It's really good to be back with you guys again. Um, I, I just wanted to say, if we don't say it often enough, um, how great it is to be up in a big auditorium and practically filling it up. And some weeks we have to roll out new tables and more chairs for folks. Um, you know, God has been growing this ministry and he's been really good to us here in the Young Professionals class. It's a ministry that all of us share. We all participate in it. Um, and, and we say it fairly often here, but um, some of you were even there and remember it firsthand. But um, just a few years ago, this class was not always a, a thriving Sunday school class with 60 people in it on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, it was a, a small group struggling to maintain a, a self-sustaining attendance roster and uh, some normal social people to, uh, to anchor the group. <laughs> so uh, we, we had a guy who used to come and ask for a prayer request for his goldfish every morning. And, you know, we, we prayed for the goldfish. And <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of people have got, come and gone uh, in the years since that time. And uh, there have been growing pains, but um, God has really richly blessed us here. Um, and I'm really encouraged by all of you guys. Um, I, I want you to know that. I'm not generally much of an optimist. Um, I view the glasses half empty more often than not. And one of my favorite pastimes is throwing a wet blanket on unwarranted enthusiasm. Um, but as I reflect on, uh, <laughs> on where God has brought us, um, I really am encouraged by you guys. So uh, some of you are, are really deeply plugged into the church here. That's fantastic. Um, if that's you, good for you. Um, if you're chasing after God with commitment and with zeal and you're serving, um, we need that. Our church needs that. There, there is virtually nothing more revitalizing and energizing to a church than young people, people our age, who are plugged in and leading through service. Um, so if that's you, good for you. Keep it up. Um, it's tremendously valuable. Um, some of you here are new. Some of you um, I've just met in the last couple of weeks and months, um, and I'm still getting to know you and really looking forward to getting to know you better. Um, and if that's you, that's fantastic too. We're, we're really glad to have you here. Um, we really want to know how we can be serving you, how we can be ministering to you, how we can be encouraging you and help you find a niche where you can serve and get plugged in and involved as well. Um, so we're, we're thankful for you. And lastly, a few of you here have been here for a long time, but you've been spiritually lazy and you probably need a good kick in the rear. Um, and so uh, we won't name any names, but you know, as Vody Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, say ouch. So um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm mostly kidding, but, uh, but um, even if that's you, we're still glad to have you here. Um, we're, we're just grateful for, for this group of young people and friends. And uh, really looking forward to all that God is doing through this church in and through you all. So um, on that note, um, getting plugged in, another shameless plug. Rob just mentioned it, but we have home groups again this Tuesday. Are we doing home groups or family groups? Okay, I go with home groups. I like you guys, but you're not my family. I do have a family, so. <laughs> we'll call them home groups. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, okay, so home group Bible studies um, this Tuesday night. Be there, be square. Um, It's one of the most important things we do. It's a really good on-ramp. If you feel like you don't know people well enough, you want to make some friends, great place to do that. Come share a meal. Um, Even help prepare a meal would be fantastic and dig into the Word together. You've got to be in the Word personally and corporately. So um, shameless plug, come to home groups. If you need to get signed up for one, come and talk to us. All right. All that intro out of the way. Um, The main topic this morning, we're back in our study in Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. Marcus kicked off the the series last week, um, looking at the first about chapter and a half of the book of Exodus. Um, And today we're looking at the last half of Exodus chapter 2. So one of the things Marcus keyed on last week and did a nice job of was... um, talking about how the Exodus story provides really an incredibly deep analogy and metaphor for the gospel, right? We're, we're reading about real historical events, but we're also reading this as a, as a metaphor of, of um, the New Testament gospel that would come about 1,500 years later. So we all know that all scripture is given to us uh, by God. It's for our learning, for our development, for our recorrect correction, it's for our edification, and all of it is very much worthy of our attention and study. You should um, read and pay attention to every page in your Bible, Old Testament and New. Um, And the deeper that you go into Scripture as you dive in, the more you will learn it, the more you will know it, um, and you'll renew your mind as you pour through it, and God is going to continue revealing new truths to you, um, deeper truths, beautiful truths as you study it. And so that's what we're going to do in Exodus as well. The Exodus account tells us stories. They are true stories, certainly, but they are stories nonetheless. Um, And they are stories of God's sovereignty, uh, of his holiness, of his divine plan to deliver his people from bondage and slavery. They're stories of his righteous judgment, stories of his providential guidance, of his day-to-day provision through long stretches of wilderness and barren desert traveling. They are stories of um, his mercy, stories of his forgiveness. Uh, They are stories of his unwavering faithfulness to a fundamentally unfaithful and idolatrous people. And they are stories of his promise-keeping reliability, of his redemption, and of his plan to lead his people into the promised land. And every last one of those stories teach us truths about God and point us back to the gospel, right? That's really our focus in the book of Exodus. It's a story for sure, but it's a story with a second meaning beyond its first meaning, right? They point us to salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. And as you dig into those stories um, in the book of Exodus, I want to echo what Marcus said. You will not exhaust the treasure trove of, of beautiful things to learn. Um, as, as you pour through these stories, as you pour through the analogies and the metaphors that they, that they give to us. The more you dig, uh, the more you search, the more you will find as you, as you dig there. So it's eminently worthwhile and worth your time. I also want to um, just comment what a phenomenal thing it is, lest we take it for granted, that we serve a God who paints pictures and writes beautiful metaphors through actual events in recorded history, right? We're human beings. We have this innate um, uh, drive. We like stories. We like uh, metaphors. We like analogies, and we like pictures. It's built into us, so you can take a very young child 
Um, and just as soon as he's old enough to understand the language, you can pull out a storybook and, and you can read that storybook to him and you can show him the, the illustrated pictures in the storybook. And if he's of the age where he can understand it and if he finds it interesting, he's going to enter into that story intellectually and emotionally and he's going to interact with it there. It's going to take over his headspace and his imagination and he's going to run wild with it. In the same way, you can take a grown adult and you can hand them a good novel or maybe a nonfiction book about history. And if it's a well-written book and if they're inclined to reading, as some of us are, um, they will enter that story and, and begin to interact with the story intellectually and emotionally. Um, and, and same with other forms of art, right? If you're, if you're uh, an art admirer, you can, you can go to a museum and look at a famous painting and admire intricate details there and it produces a, a bit of an emotional response in you or maybe a photograph. And so it's our nature to appreciate stories and pictures like this and as a result, we have people whose whole career it is to produce these works of art, right? We have um, novelists and authors, we have playwrights, we have poets, we have artists, we have photographers, we have illustrators, we have animators, we have composers, we have performers, we have musicians. We have all manner of people whose job it is in life to create compelling works of art with intricate, beautiful details for us to go out and appreciate and enjoy. And many of them are very good at what they do, right? We have professionals, they're good. But there are limits to what human artists can produce, right? Specifically, human artists cannot take fictional stories and manifest them into physical reality. It's just not a thing. You can, you can have a playwright um, write a whole play and he can hire some actors and they'll play it out on stage, but it's still just fiction, right? It's still just actors on a stage. Um, novelists can, can imagine compelling fictions, they can write them down, um, but none of these artists can paint pictures and, and manifest their stories into real life. But God is different than us, isn't he? And God can take pictures and stories and metaphors and analogies and paint them with real historical human events, right? And when we read the, the real events of Exodus, what we find is that God is simultaneously working for two purposes. What we find is that he's first of all working in the real events in the real country of Egypt to liberate a real Hebrew people who were really enslaved there. He's keeping very real promises made to those people. They're just as real as you and I. But at the same time, he is writing for us and he saw to it that it would be recorded in his word. He is writing for us a beautiful metaphorical story so that we can better understand his plan of redemption and deliverance in our lives through Jesus Christ. Um, that's the gospel. Um, and only the almighty God can write pictures and metaphors into real human history. Um, so I hope that as we uh, go through the book of Exodus, we appreciate that. I hope that causes you to, uh, to worship God and realize that um, he's had a plan from the very beginning for all of this. Um, God exists outside of time, outside of space, and he has, uh, according to the scriptures, planned our salvation in Jesus Christ from long before we were ever born. 2,000 years before you were born, he provided for you a savior. And another 1,500 years before that, 
Savior came, God was at work in the country of Egypt, orchestrating this exodus like a masterful artist, painting a picture of the salvation that he would provide through Jesus later on. And, and so, um, you know, Psalm 139 says, uh, all your days were, were written down in a book. Every, every day that was ordained for you to live, God knew that it would come, and he knew that you would need deliverance. Um, and, and he knew that long before you were ever even a figment of anyone's imagination. Um, and, and he's provided for it. And, and as we study Exodus now, um, God is inviting you in to observe and to marvel at his foreknowledge, at his plans that he has made, at his provision, his power, and his goodness through the stories of Exodus. So I hope that we will all engage. I hope that we will enter the story and interact with it and give glory to God for the wonderful things that he has done. All right, that's a lot of intro. We're in Exodus 2 this morning. Um, last week, Marcus introduced Moses to us. Moses is uh, maybe aside from God himself, the central character of the book of Exodus. And um, Marcus did a good job of you know, building up Moses last week. So um, I'm nothing if not a contrarian and I'm gonna go ahead and tear him right back down. Um, <clears throat> Behind Jesus, I think Marcus is absolutely right. Moses stands shoulder to shoulder with any of the great men in history. There's, there's really not anybody you can point to and, and say, well, Moses didn't really have it going on like that guy. He was, he was an incredible leader. Marcus told you about how if you go to the House of Representatives, there's 23 reliefs there, and there's, uh, there's uh, sculptures on each of the reliefs um, with great lawmakers and lawgivers throughout uh, world history. And there's 12, or I'm sorry, 11 on one side facing left and 11 on the other side facing right. And the man in the very center, the only one looking directly at the rostrum is Moses, right? Right, right in our own U.S. House of Representatives, um, in case you needed to, to be more convinced that this was a great man in history. He was revealed by all Israel for millennia. Certainly at the time Jesus came, there was, there was none considered greater than Moses in Hebrew history, um, and he's revered even to this day. But today's lesson does not begin with Moses' greatness. It begins instead with his indiscretion, with his violence, with his anger, and with his moral failure. Today's lesson is actually about a great leader making a terrible mistake. Um, the Moses we will discuss today was a murderer, he was an outlaw, and he was a fugitive from justice. And so with that, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read the first few verses of our passage. Exodus 2, I'll start in verse 11. It says, Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. We'll stop there for now. When we think about Moses, how many of us really think about a murderer? I mean, like, I'd venture to say that's probably not the top thing that comes to mind for, for most of us, maybe any of us. And yet, long before Moses was ever a leader 
or a deliverer of his people or an instrument in the hand of God, um, that's exactly who he was. He was a murderer. If we were to charge his crimes under U.S. law today, um, it would probably be charged as a second-degree murder. Um, it was a killing with malicious intent, but it wasn't really premeditated. We'd maybe call it a crime of passion. In the, in the heat of the moment, he just struck him dead. Um, but second-degree murder would probably earn him a, a sentence of uh, 30 to life in our, um, in our modern judicial system. And in the judicial system of Egypt at the time, it would probably just get him killed. Um, we're, we're a little bit more merciful today, but back then it was really an eye for an eye. You kill somebody, you're probably going to die. And, uh, and that's what Pharaoh tried to do. He tried to kill him. Um, and Moses had to run and, and hide in the land of Midian. We'll, we'll get to that part a little bit later. So killing, malicious intent. Um, he's maybe had a, a good heart motive, um, if you can say that about a murder. I don't know. Um, he, he was trying to defend a, a Hebrew slave who was being abused by this uh, Egyptian slave driver. Um, but regardless, let's be honest, that is not a justification for killing a man and hiding his body, right? You can't do it. Um, it, is, it is, at best, a crime of tremendous indiscretion. His zeal outran his judgment in this case. And we notice also about the great leader Moses that immediately after this crime, the very next day, this great leader's leadership was utterly rejected by his own people, right? On account of his failures, in fact. The respect among the Hebrews had evaporated within 24 hours. The very next day he goes out, tries to break up a fight between two of his own people. And the guy's like, I'm not listening to you. Who made you the judge? I just saw you kill a guy yesterday. Now you want to judge me for fighting? Wasn't going to hear it. There's actually a parallel passage to this um, Exodus account. Um, surprisingly, we find it in the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 7. Um, in, in Acts 7, um, the speaker is Stephen. Um, he is uh, one of the early church uh, martyrs. Actually, I think he's the first martyr. Um, and in Acts 7, Stephen is giving an impassioned speech before the Sanhedrin, um, who will, uh, at the end of the account, stone him to death for what he tells them, uh, because he's really not saying very nice things to them, uh, though they are true. And uh, Stephen, in his long speech that he's giving before his martyrdom um, restates the account of Exodus. And he, he actually adds a couple of details that aren't in the original text. Um, they're still in scripture, so we, we know them, of course, to be true. Um, I'll, I'll read that just really quickly there. Uh, Acts 7, starting verse 20. It says, At the time Moses was born, he was no ordinary child. Um, for three months he was carried by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as, as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, there's a new detail for us, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? 
When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Parallel passage there. It tells the same story. Um, largely a summary and restatement, but he, he does add in a few details. He, he actually speaks to Moses' motivation a little bit. Um, and he also tells us Moses' age at the time of the murder. Moses was not a 17-year-old teenager who, who hadn't yet figured out how to live as a, as a mature adult. Moses was 40 years old when this happened, right? It was Acts chapter 7, 7 verse 20. And so he had two sons, but here, like right there, it says he, has, he had seven daughters. Isn't that like a contradictory account? Um, maybe he had two sons and seven daughters. I, I didn't catch that, but yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll study and circle back. How about that? That'll be good. I think, yeah, I think it's the father, his father-in-law is the one who had seven daughters in the account in Exodus there. So, but we'll, we'll circle back. <clears throat> so, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house. He lived, um, again, he, he had this miraculous story of God's provision where um, all of the Hebrew boys were being killed as babies um, by, by order of Pharaoh. Um, but Moses' mother raised him for three months and then hid him in a basket in the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter came out and found him. And then for the next 40 years, he essentially lives as an adopted prince in the palace in Egypt. Uh, remarkable story. Um, and then after 40 years, um, the, the Acts account tells us that he came out and he decided to visit his own people. He realized, I'm a Hebrew. I've been growing up as a prince here, you know, it's been kind of nice, but um, actually these are my people here. Maybe I should go interact with them a little bit. And so he did that, and, um, and that's when, um, in, in a moment of passion and zeal, he kills the Egyptian slave driver um, at 40 years old, and then he runs off um, in, in hiding, basically living in exile in the land of Midian, uh, running for his life. And that period lasts another 40 years. So for the first 40 years, he lives as a prince in the Egyptian palace. For the next 40 years, he lives as an exile, lives actually as presumably a shepherd out in the land of Midian. And um, Moses died at the age of 120 years. So 40 years palace, 40 years exile in Midian. The last 40 years are the years that we remember him for. They're the 40 years after the Exodus event after God works through him mightily to bring these 10 plagues to Egypt to liberate his people, kills the whole Egyptian army on the way out, giving some foreshadowing here for the future weeks, right? Um, and, and then he spends 40 years wandering around in the wilderness um, with, with the Israelites before they enter the promised land. And he actually dies just before they enter the promised land. So we have an even uh, trio of 40-year periods in Moses' life. And we've already said it, but when we think about Moses, we remember him almost exclusively for that third period, right? And that's for good reason. I mean, the, the vast bulk of the Exodus account is about that last period. Um, the, the first 80 years is kind of treated as a footnote in these first couple chapters just to give us like the origin story. And then, and then the real focus of Exodus is on those last 40 years. Um, but... Moses was an 80-year-old man by the time he was commissioned at the burning bush to go liberate his people, right? He, he wasn't young at that point. Um, and, and who he was before that was a murderer and an exile and a fugitive. For just as long as he spent liberating his people, he was an exile and a fugitive and a murderer. 
What are we to make of those first 80 years of his life? First a prince, then an exile and a murderer, and then the man that we remember who God used mightily. What do we make of this account where he just hauls off and kills an Egyptian and hides the body? How do we fit that into our picture of who Moses is? How do I fit that into who Marcus painted him to be last week? Come on, Marcus. Well, I think there's a couple of points to be made. Um, I, I want you to consider that and think, how do I square this? How should I view Moses? Think, think of how would you answer that question? Um, but I'll offer up a, a couple of suggestions first. Um, the first point to be made is food for thought is that God's people are not defined by their worst mistakes. Um, and you should be thankful for that this morning. Um, I am quite sure we have people in here in the YP who have messed up in life, people who have made big mistakes, hopefully no murderers, I'm not sure. Um, if you are a murderer, maybe don't let me know. Probably rather not know. <laughs> but, but nevertheless, you know, we got some folks in here who've messed up in life. And um, if you're here and you messed up badly, you're in very good company. So have I. So have I. So had Moses. But if you've repented of those mistakes and you've confessed that sin to God and you've been seeking to walk in the forgiveness that he has promised you, then it's time to get back up and it's time to dust yourself off and it's time to live in that forgiveness that you've been promised and humbly get back to work for the sake of the kingdom. That is, um, I think, the first point to be made this morning. We are all broken sinners here, right? We are all debtors to the grace of God, but we are not a people who are first and foremost defined by our worst mistakes. God is in the business of redemption. He's in the business of second chances, and he specializes in taking the broken pieces of a messed up life that you yourself have created and gluing them all back together and making them whole again and using them for his glory, right? So um, don't let the devil get you so mired down in guilt when you've messed up that you fail to get back up again and serve God. Um, it would be a tremendous loss if Moses, after this crime of, of indiscretion, this, this serious mistake that he made, had decided, well, I probably can't serve God. I'm a murderer now. I should just go, I guess, lean into a life of crime, you know? I'm running from the law anyway. I might as well rob some people and <laughs> get what I can out of it. He didn't do that. He, um, he recognized his mistake. He, he was a fugitive. He ran for his life and, and, and survived uh, for another 40 years in the land of Midian until the, the Pharaoh who wanted him dead had, had passed away. Um, but even in those 40 years, he was out there actually serving God. We'll, we'll read about the second part of this passage in just a second. That's point number one. Point number two is that God prepares leaders before he commissions them, um, and his preparation can take a lot of different forms. Um, you would think that preparation for leadership or, uh, in the kingdom would look like some kind of cut and dry formal program, right? You know, I go to seminary for four years, and then I become a pastor, and then I prepare my sermons every Sunday, and uh, that's how I serve God. But um, God has a much broader view of what preparation actually entails than uh, going to seminary and getting some degree behind your name. Um, Moses learned lessons in the first 40 years of his life as a prince in Egypt. Those were lessons that God wanted him to learn, 
lessons that no other Israelite at the time would have had access to because no other Israelite got an inside view of Pharaoh's palace in Egypt. He got to um, observe firsthand the inside of that palace. Um, he got to see what nobody else got to see. He got to learn how to act as an authority figure, how to lead a nation, how to, how to, how to lead a really large group of people and you know, maintain order and peace there. He, he got to learn how to maybe delegate some responsibility effectively. He maybe gained some practical wisdom on uh, what it looks like to, to lead a country. Um, but God also wanted Moses to learn one thing that Pharaoh certainly could not teach him, and that was humility. Um, because Pharaoh couldn't teach humility because he was not a humble man. Pharaoh was an arrogant man, um, and he was a man whose stubborn pride would ultimately lead him into the judgment of God in the form of ten plagues and ultimately his death and the death of his entire army in the Red Sea. Moses, or, or Pharaoh was, was certainly an arrogant man. Um, he could lead a nation, but he couldn't teach Moses about humility. Um, and so God sovereignly ordained. God didn't tell Moses, hey, go murder this Egyptian man. He, he wasn't personally responsible for the crime. But as we see frequently throughout Scripture, God uses even mistakes that we make even bad things in the world, God can repurpose them and, and use them for good. And so God sovereignly ordained that Moses would be cast out of the royal palace after 40 years due to his own mistake, and he would spend another third of his lifetime, another 40 years, um, away from his relatives, away from the palace that he was raised in, and he would live there as a humble shepherd, as an exile. He would tend sheep in his father-in-law's land and he would live a humble life for a little while. Numbers, uh, Numbers 23, don't remember the chapter exactly, says that Moses was like the humblest guy who ever lived. Um, kind of funny when you think about Moses as the author of the book of Numbers, but um, yeah, <laughs> in any case, uh, he, he was certainly a humble man that was part of what made him a great leader. And I think he learned a lot of that humility during this second of the three periods of his life living as an exile. Let's read the rest of our passage for this morning. I'm going to pick back up in Exodus 2, 15 through 25. It says, But Moses fled from Pharaoh, reading from verse 15, and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Royal, don't know if I pronounced that correctly, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked the daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Sipporah to marriage, to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. <laughs> After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. So God uses Moses' mistake to teach him humility and to teach him rely, to rely on God for protection, right? When you're in exile, when you're, 
running from um, the uh, supreme leader of probably the most powerful country in the world at the time, the leader of Egypt, um, you, you tend to be a little bit more ready to rely on God for protection because you can't guarantee it for yourself. Um, that reliance on God is, is something that Moses would need in spades for the final uh, third of his life. Um, he needed to learn to depend on God, right? And, and as he wanders the wilderness for the last 40 years, he is doing that in, in a more tangible and, and uh, non-abstract way than maybe any of us have ever done. Um, literally following a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night to know where to go, literally having no food in dry wilderness and relying that on God that every morning that I wake up, there will be manna that magically appeared out on the ground and I can just go collect it and, and feed an entire nation of people when there is no food source here. Moses had to learn earlier on in his life how to rely on God. And I think he did that in this second chapter here. So we see Moses' story as yet another example of God working through everything, including our mistakes and including our failures to bring about his good purposes. One more point, and then we'll, uh, we'll uh, close in prayer and, and leave a little bit of time for you guys to discuss and reflect on things here. Um, the final point is that we Christians do not get the luxury of inflexibly planning the trajectory of our own lives. Um, we don't get to say, well, this is exactly what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do that no matter what because I'm in charge here. Um, we can make plans. It's on some levels wise to make plans, right? You should be financially planning for your own future and for your retirement maybe. You should be planning out, you know, when you take a new job, where do I want to be in five years from now? Um, but if you're really following Jesus and you're really allowing him to lead you through this life, then you've got to be open to changing course and obedience to him. I might be reading into the text a little bit here, but I feel pretty confident in saying that the 39-year-old Moses, who existed as a prince in the Egyptian palace right before this event that we read about this morning, did not have plans to live as an exiled shepherd in Midian for the next 40 years of his life, and then for the final 40 years to return to Egypt to prophesy to the new pharaoh uh, about plagues that would come his way if he didn't release all of his own slaves, uh, to liberate an entire nation of enslaved Hebrew people, uh, and to finish out by wandering around the desert in the wilderness for 40 years, following a, a pillar of cloud and fire and eating manna that appeared magically off the ground, right? I think we can safely say that 39-year-old Moses did not have that in his life plan as he mapped it out. But that is exactly what God had for him. Um, and and Moses' credit here, um, as we discuss his great mistake in life, um, Moses' great credit the credit that allowed him to, to redeem himself and to be used greatly by God and to be this great leader in history was that he was humble enough and willing enough to follow God's leading in his life. He was still open to God's call. Um, even after his own mistakes, he said, Lord, I serve you. I'll take your directions. <clears throat> Are we open to that leading in our own lives? That's a, that's a question I certainly have to ask myself because I've certainly got all of it planned out already. I've got my idea of how my life should be. I know, uh, you know what job I want to work and how much money I want to make and where I want to live and what I want to drive um, and whom I want my friends to be. And uh, I've got it all planned out.
but um, I don't know what God has for me. And you don't know what God has for you either. Um, it's, it's not for us to know his ways. His ways are higher than our ways, is what the book of Isaiah says. And um, if you're really following him, you have to hold these plans loosely. And you have to be open to his leading. You have to be open to a change of direction. You have to be open and ready for him to reveal himself to you in a special way and commission you for a new work um, that he has planned for you. We ought not just blindly march to the beat of our own drum out here. So with that, may God grant us grace to be like Moses, um, not, not to murder someone, uh, but to, to follow God with faith, to recover, to pick ourselves back up after we make a mistake, dust ourselves off and follow God with faith despite our own failings. Um, may he use us as he used Moses uh, for whatever his plans are, big or small, uh, his plans are always better than ours. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much um, for the, the testimony of uh, Moses um, that points us back to Christ. We thank you that we are not a people defined by our mistakes. We are not a people um, who, who once we mess up one time are, are beyond redemption, Lord, but that you've provided a path for redemption for each of us and that... Um, your, your mercy and your grace flows freely from the cross on Calvary. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us as we move forward to follow you um, with faith, to, to go wherever you would lead us, Lord, and to, uh, to do the work of your kingdom that you've called us to do. May we follow you this week in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have a little discussion time. I'll give it back to Rob and then we can debrief.